Hello and welcome to Controversies in Church History. My name is Derek Taylor. I am the host for this podcast in which we delve into controversial and important topics in the history of the Catholic Church. Um, this episode is episode two of a new series on Catholic liberalism, a movement which started in 19th century France and which uh, will go up to the end of the 19th century. And so in episode two, this episode two is called Revolutionary Times, 1789 to 1848. We're give you a little bit of background I think you need to have to understand where it comes from, where this Catholic liberal movement comes from, and uh, what the sources of its ideas and uh, uh, everything come from. So that's what we're doing in today's episode. Uh, before we get started, please uh, check us out uh, if you haven't already. Go, uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on a variety of different platforms. Anchor is my pla is my podcast host. iTunes, Spotify. Um, also on YouTube, please go to the channel, subscribe. Uh, please leave comments. I try to respond. If you have any suggestions for anything, uh, I am open to them. And uh, also visit us uh, on a Facebook page as well. I also post announcements there for everybody about the podcast and uh, and things going on. Uh, and the website, churchcontroversies.com. I'm posting more things there now. I just posted a an article uh, recently. I also recently posted the uh, bibliography of works from my last podcast on the Ukraine. So if you at all interested because of what's going on in Ukraine right now, go in there and look at some books for you. A little bit of a brief um, um, bibliography describing some works for you. Uh, so please check us out, like, subscribe, and please share with other people. Let them know about what I'm doing here. Um, so I spread the word and help uh, get the podcast out there. Blessings to you all. I'm recording this on Wednesday of Holy Week, Spy Wednesday. And um, today we're going to talk about revolution in this podcast because you really can't understand Catholic liberalism and where it comes from without understanding its legacy um, for the French church especially. Uh, now if you remember last time we talked about Catholic liberalism being a movement which wanted to embrace the idea that the church would effectively embrace separation of church and state, embrace um, renouncing its political and legal privileges. And all of this goes back to the French Revolution. So I'll give you a little bit of a timeline here. First of all, if you don't know, I'm sure if you're listening to this, you probably know something about um, the French Revolution. We'll give you a timeline to make a few points with regards to the church for this, for its legacy. So I'm sure, you, hopefully you know, if you don't know much about it, the French Revolution uh, began in 1789. The French monarchy was on the brink of bankruptcy. Um, the absolute monarchy, which ruled without any sort of parliament for 175 years, simply couldn't find a, a political solution to raise money. So they decided to, well, do something they hadn't done in 175 years, call for a parliament, call for a meeting of the Estates General, which is the name of the French, old medieval French parliament. They have elections, they are sent to Paris. And if you don't know how the, we say the, the, uh, the Estates General, the, uh, what, what's called the Estates General, it's called Estates because you didn't have members representing their geographic areas meet in an assembly like you're familiar with from Congress or from a modern parliament. They're meeting as estates, as members of the body politic. There are three estates in French law, peasantry, uh, nobility, and the clergy. And that's how they met. However, when they got to 
uh, got to Paris. You had a lot of people in the third estate who were, they outnumbered the other two orders, the other two orders, but they voted by order. So the other two orders could sort of outvote the much bigger, much more numerous uh, body of people, which is symbolic, of course, because there's a lot more peasantry than there is anything else in France. And so what happened is the members of the third estate, um, led by some politicians, basically declared themselves to be a national assembly in June of 1789. And they uh, urged the other two estates to join them, to form a national assembly. I'm emphasizing this because this is the revolution, ultimately. Uh, the king and the other two estates kind of hold out for a few weeks, but they know they can't, after a while they have to give in. The other two orders are actually ordered to join um, the third estate, and this becomes a national assembly. Why is that the revolution? Because basically they are claiming to represent the nation itself, that assembly, not the king. And this will become clear fairly quickly within a few years, and that's where you leave violence and bloodshed between supporters of the monarchy and supporters of the revolution. But this National Assembly does a few things almost right away. Uh, in August of 1789, it, uh, it abolishes all feudal privileges. That order of estates is based on essentially medieval feudal ideas. It abolishes all those privileges for the church, for the nobility, for everybody. And it passes a, um, it issues a declaration of the rights of man and citizen, equal universal rights for everybody. And so this is the revolution in its beginnings. It's a wiping away of this older order, which of course privileged the church. The same time, almost at the same time, again, they still have debt problems. In the fall of 1789, starting in October, they begin in the name of the nation, there's the National Assembly, uh, expropriating church lands and issuing documents called assignats, which are sort of like a currency based on, you know, future parcels of land you're going to get, I guess, in order to try to pay off its debts. So almost immediately you go from, because uh, the church, by the way, is the, by far the biggest landholder in the country. Um, and people, have, certain people have been resentful of their wealth for a long time. But because now the church is part of the nation in 1790, acting in a way that French kings had before, just to clarify, kings had always in France exercised a lot of power over the church. The National Assembly passes something called the Civil Constitution of the Clergy in 1790, uh, which basically reorganizes the church along the lines of the state, literally physically. The boundaries of bishoprics and dioceses are, are redrawn to match the new map of the country. Bishops are going to be appointed. Well, this is partly a thing here. They're, they're supposed to be appointed by the government. A lot of times they were under the monarchy. It's not as big of a change as anything else. But one of the things that this is giving an idea of how radical a restructuring this was, it also threw open the, um, the office of parish priest to the election of parishioners. And not just, by the way, people who were members of the parish, but anyone who lived in a parish, Catholic or not, could be Protestants, Jewish people, atheists. This is, by the way, I mentioned this because this is where the revolution kind of goes off the rails and begins to split because it had been unanimity up until this point. 
the Pope takes a year because he doesn't want to do the thing too precipitous, but the Pope at the time, Paul VI, or Pius VI, will condemn it in 1791. And early on, it begins to cause real division. So in uh, the next year, the National Assembly issues an oath of loyalty to the civil constitution of the clergy, to all the priests in the country. And it splits the uh, clergy in half. About 52% of the clergy take this oath, 48% refuse it. And this is the beginning of a permanent division, not just in the clergy, within the country itself. Uh, there's an historian named Timothy Tackett who years ago did a study on this. If you break down the areas in France, 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 where clergy refuse to take the oath and you match it up to voting patterns, like up through the 1960s in France, um, for uh, for uh, you know conservative areas, they're almost identical. This will predict the breakdown of politics for the next 200 years, basically, in France. It's such a bitterly divisive thing. And they go one step further. That they also uh, issue the next year. Uh, it's a different assembly, different name by then. But after they abolish the monarchy, the revolutionary uh, government issues an oath of liberty and equality, demanding that all the clergy take an oath to defend liberty and equality uh, and to uh, defend the regime with it, with their lives. And again, this, there's also a big split over this. Um, it causes a big permanent bitterness and div div division uh, amongst the clergy because you have some who take it, who get called submissiaires, submissives, because they took it, they submitted to it, and others who didn't, as submissiaires. So you have this permanent divisioning open up within the clergy itself, bitter divisions. And of course, I'm going to speed over all the stuff that you probably have heard of. Oh yeah, the church was really badly persecuted, starting in 1793 with the abolition of the monarchy, the execution of Louis XVI, the monarch. <clears throat> um, churches are closed, seminaries are shut down, um, priests and nuns are executed, martyred. I won't belabor this, but 1793-94 is a bad couple of years. Even after this, when there's a reaction against the reign of terror, which sets in in 1794, there's still sporadic persecution. There's still attempts, by the way, to replace the church, to create you know, a religion of reason, uh, to create festivals of reason and stuff like this. Multiple attempts to create a, a replacement religion based on rationalistic, supposedly non-superstitious lines. All through, up to, through the next four or five years until 1799 when First, you have one coup d'etat, um, the Abbe Sies, who was a longtime politician, manages to overthrow the directory. In turn, uh, of course, a few months later, on the 18th Brumaire, um, that's the new revolutionary calendar that was put into place. Anyway, long story, a young general named Napoleon Bonaparte takes over in 1799. This is when things get begin to sort of shift for the church a little bit. The persecution basically ends at that point. And because Napoleon is a, uh, an upstart, he needs as much support as he can get, as much legitimacy as he can get. So he signs a concordat with the uh, papacy in 1801, which basically makes gives church legal status again within the uh, within France, uh, announcing that it is the not the official religion of the country, but the religion of the majority of the people of France. Um, and so it does, it doesn't quite restore to what it was before. 
never, by the way, restores any of its property. That never comes back. You can go through all through France today and, and see, you know, ruined abbeys, ruined churches all over the place. That destruction is still visible in France to this day, but did give it a place within the regime. But also basically it's almost explicitly denied that papal jurisdiction can be sort of <laughs> exercised in France. So things got really uh, cold pretty quickly between Pius VII, the Pope, and Napoleon. <clears throat> such that in 1808, Napoleon invaded Italy and uh, conquered the Papal States, announcing they were annexed to France in 1809, in response to which Pius VII very bravely excommunicated him and the entire army. In response, Napoleon took him prisoner for the next five years. By the way, if you want to know more about Pius VII, I actually have a podcast on that, a podcast, a podcast episode part of the Catholic Live series on Pius VII, the uh, guy, that, guy who, the Pope who excommunicated uh, Napoleon. In any event, this didn't turn out well for Napoleon. Um, the powers unite around him, yada, yada, uh, 1814, the Congress of Vienna um, gets together. There's the first defeated Napoleon in 1814. He's sent off to uh, Elba. And uh, Pius VII is released in 1814. Uh, next year, of course, uh, Napoleon escapes, comes back, he's defeated at Waterloo, and for the final time, uh, Pius VII is restored to the Papal States, uh, and the Papal States are restored to him, as also, by the way, in 70 years later, 1814, restored also are the Jesuits, uh, who've been, been kiboshed back in the 1770s. Uh, they're brought back by Pius VII. Two other dates you'll need to know. I'll come back to this in, in, in ensuing episodes, but there'll be two more revolutions in the first part of the 19th century. Uh, revolution 1830, a liberal revolution. We'll come to that later on. The so-called July Revolution of 1830. And then the revolutions of 1848, which begin in Paris. More of a liberal revolution. Another liberal revolution, I should say. That's for another time. That's the basic timeline we're talking about here. And instead of all this, you get liberalism emerging. And in fact, even though the French Revolution is at the heart of all this, the term liberal, liberal or liberalism, or certainly liberals as a sort of political program, political party, doesn't come from the French language. It comes from Spain. Uh, during the Napoleonic Wars, uh, Napoleon uh, occupied Spain. His brother was on the throne of Spain from 1808 to 1813. And during that period, you had some members of the Spanish Cortes. Uh, Cortes is the Parliament of, of Spain. And they were influenced by French Enlightenment ideas. And they first had a group of them who became to be called liberales because they wanted to reduce the church's privileges. Even though most of them were committed Roman Catholics and some of the, most of the changes they were making were fairly minor. They got that term, liberales, to be free, basically trying to free I guess the state from the church a little bit. However, in 1820, after Napoleon's been done away with, these liberales in Spain come to power in a military coup. And there's two factions among them, a more moderate faction and a more radical one. And what happens is the radical faction gets the upper hand. They begin attacking the church in the ways reminiscent of the French Revolution, attacking clergy, destroying churches, stuff like this. And this lasts for three years, and it only ends in 1823 when the restored French monarchy, which is brought back in 1815 after Napoleon's done away with, 
the restored Bobal dynasty, um, sends out an army to Spain and puts a stop to it there, restores the Spanish monarchy there. So it's all part of this sort of matrix. And just a few words, by the way, about the term liberalism. It comes into being in this period. According to the, the Oxford English Dictionary, the first use of the word liberalism in the English language in the sense of a definite political program emphasizing individual rights and, and that sort of thing uh, dates to 1816 uh, from an English newspaper account of political events in Spain. The word comes into French uh, around the same time, about 1818, uh, more or less. Of course, the term liberal, by the way, before this, uh, you know, going back centuries, had denoted the term liberal meant someone who's generous of character, someone who's free from servility or, or base things. By the 1750s, uh, in uh, in France, it applied to a, to people who supported reform and individual rights, and it, it was used in that same sense in Britain from at least the 1780s. Uh, after the Napoleonic Wars in Britain, people started using that term to, to uh, smear politicians uh, who uh, who the, uh, would being you know radical anti-monarchists like some of the French were on the continent. So it became a a, a polemical term in the British affairs. Interestingly enough, um, the first use of the term liberal in reference specifically to theology uh, and specifically to a willingness to jettison traditional beliefs doesn't come from any of these European countries. It comes from America, according to the OED in 1807. So that's what liberalism as a term comes first from America, which is interesting. Uh, the first use of a term uh, of the term liberal applied to someone in in terms of their theology also comes in the United States. So interesting that this is, it's not just a European thing, but um, again, Catholic liberalism has sources that are kind of, I don't say universal, but they're having in different places at different times, my point. And finally, in terms of what was restored in 1815, just to, to wrap this up, when the Bourbons were restored in 1815, it came along with a parliament. They tried to bring back the absolute monarchy. No one, they just couldn't do it. But they did want to prop up the regime. And, uh, but they also gave it a, a, a parliament which had political parties of a kind. And it had the normal sort of spectrum you would expect. I mean, again, most of our political terminology comes from France, left and right. Um, that's a French. That's a French thing. On the far right, you had ultras or reactionaries who were, wanted the absolute monarchy restored, followed by more moderate but very cons still conservative monarchists. And on the left, you had a mixture of all sorts of things. On the very far were, were people who wanted the revolution back, but you also had Bonapartists, supporters, supporters, supporters of Napoleon. Out and out Republicans, maybe all more on the radical revolutionary side, and a group of people who, for the first time, began to call themselves liberals <clears throat> and follow this program of protecting individual rights. And one of the first thinkers to call himself this was an important thinker named Benjamin Constant, who was a, uh, his dates are 1767 to 1830. He was actually Swiss, but he's a French writer. And uh, like other French liberals, he was someone who looked who favored an English style of parliamentary government, you know, middle-class parliament. 19th century liberals, by the way, did not like democracy at all. They were fearful of mob action. They were fearful of the excesses of the revolution, basically. They remembered a lot of stuff and favored protection for individual freedom of the press, religion, and were for things like education. They didn't want uneducated people voting, uh, working class people, stuff like that. 
And uh, Colston, his political liberalism, remember last time we talked about that distinction between political and religious liberalism, we're talking about political liberalism here. If you're thinking of liberalism in terms of John Locke, it's a little different. John Locke's liberalism, uh, he never used the term, but it's basically the same thing. But he, um, his, Locke's uh, ideas were, were philosophically motivated. Uh, his empiricism, his idea that all knowledge came through experience, sensory experience. His idea of the blank slate, that we're not born with any innate ideas. These things fed into his liberalism. Whereas Colston, instead of appealing to philosophy, appealed to history to justify his program. He wrote a famous essay called The Liberty of the Ancients and the Moderns, in which he argued that people in a modern society couldn't exercise liberty the same way people had in the ancient world. Because in the ancient world, Greek, ancient Greece and Rome, Roman Republic, these ancient republics were based on slavery and the subje subjection of the many in order to provide the few the leisure to be citizens actively engaged in public life. So liberty is a public thing in the, in the ancient world because of this. In modern societies, which are based on commerce rather than slavery, according to Colston, uh, you have the reverse. Instead, you have a more powerful state, and therefore what you have is a negative liberty, which is meant to free people from that state, which meant that private life was sort of raised to a higher standard in Colston's mind. Uh, which he valued as protecting private life. In other words, liberty is not to protect the public exercise of, of something. It's to protect the private uh, privacy of people in some ways. And the other difference, of course, is that for Colston, this is now open to the many rather than the few. Um, he sees this as a gain in some ways. And, um, and so it mocks out his philosophy as being very modern. It meant a lot of areas that were, <clears throat> you know, might have been seen as public before, like religion, were not kind of seen by private result of this this philosophy so he's an important thinker who by the way won't totally directly influence catholic liberalism but it's in the background of this stuff so i need to mention it can't yeah, go without it um and so in this restored monarchy in france you also have one other force that <clears throat> besides liberalism as a political and um and sort of intellectual force that shapes into to catholic liberalism and the other big force is a cultural one, and that would be Romanticism. You probably, again, you probably got some of this in high school, if you know what Romanticism is. <clears throat> it is a reaction in pretty much all areas of life. A lot of times it's, you get this recitation of like literary or, or artistic movements, but it's really in all areas of life against enlightenment, enlightenment notions of rationality, against overweening notions of enlightenment, reason and rationality notions of rationality that rule out things like faith or rule out things like you know um anything that's not rational somehow bad or non-existent and in its place you get as a reaction to this an emphasis on feelings intuition holistic perspectives on the on the world rather than the sort of logic chopping you know sort of categorization you get uh, from a lot of uh, um, enlightenment thinkers Um, and this meant in art, by the way, a rebellion against the uh, artistic movements of the 18th century, like classicism, which everything has to be sort of restrained in terms of art and form and architecture, literature. Uh, in its place, an exuberance, right? A taste for the exotic, the passionate, but also for the past, the distant past especially, a longing for an earlier, simpler era, especially the medieval era. This is the age of medievalism, 
If you like your local Renaissance Fair, you can thank the Romanticism for that, because it sweeps across Western Europe and the United States and, and gives people a sensibility which looks toward the past for inspiration. That, in, in short, is Romanticism. One thing you're probably not aware of, though, is that this also affects how religion is practiced pretty much throughout the Western world. And it's really hard to explain, actually. If you, if you read you know, works on religious life before the, before the early 19th century, it's very different. People don't think in religion the same ways. I mean, religion for people, in, like I, I studied the 17th century in my, in my specialty, my graduate work, study work, and, um, and people like John Locke, to go back to him, religion is mostly about doctrine. It's about knowing the truth. And it's mostly an intellectual thing. And what's going to happen with romanticism, all this emphasis on feeling and intuition is going to reshape how people practice and experience their religious faith. And this will directly feed into Catholic liberalism. One of the big bestsellers of the Restoration Era, even before Restoration Era, in France, uh, is a book called The Genius of Christianity, published in 1803, shortly after Napoleon took power, by René Chateaubriand. Chateaubriand was a nobleman, uh, was an ardent Catholic, who wrote this uh, work of apologetics, which he exalts what he calls the genius of Christianity, but particularly he's talking about Catholicism, uh, not because of the truth of its doctrines or things of this nature, but because of its beauty, because of the beauty of its liturgy and its rituals, and uh, becomes a bestseller, by the way. It's wildly popular. It's the first work, you know, really sell best work that sold in France following the revolution that took a positive outlook on the church. And you can see, also see this, by the way, in the uh, work on religion by Benjamin Constant. I mentioned earlier, he's a Swiss, he's a Protestant, but he has similar things to say. I mean, literally, Constant writes a big multi-volume work in the 1820s called De la Religion, uh, on religion, where he basically just out and out identifies religion with feeling. Here's a quotation from it. Quote, the religious sentiment is an emotion of the same type as all our natural emotions. It is always in agreement in consequence with sympathy, pity, and justice, in a word, with all the virtues. For, for Constant, it is basically feeling and sentiment. This is part of a much wider trend, by the way. It's not just happening in France. It's happening everywhere. Um, this uh, tendency to see faith, religion, as something that primarily induces subjective psychological states. In the Protestant world, or the person who's most famously uh, alive with this idea is Friedrich Schleiermacher, who is the sort of uh, progenitor, the godfather of liberal Protestantism. He identifies true religion with feeling uh, and subjectivity. Not quite the same thing, and this actually starts a little earlier in the Protestant world than it does in the Catholic world, but same time frame, 1801. In America, you have the first wave of revivals in the backcountry of Kentucky and places like that, Pennsylvania, which will come in time to be baptized with the name of the Second Great Awakening. And again, this is kind of the same thing. We have people like, you know, they're having these emotional experiences in this mass setting in America. But this is, again, my point is this is a pan-Western phenomenon of appealing to emotion this way. And uh, 
it, it, it's kind of part and partial of this. It sometimes romanticism is called a revolutionary movement because of this, for this reason. Um, but again, it shows you kind of religion being pushed toward this more subjective, more private notion uh, in terms of how people conceive of it here. Well, that's not totally true in the case of Chateaubriand or even Colston, but still it has a tendency to do that. Uh, and Colston's uh, idea of religion is, again, in the uh, in the mainstream of sort of, you know, uh, liberal thinking of that time in, in, in that sense. So. Yeah, a little bit different than, than the political version, but it's part of the, the, the religious version in that era. And this also goes along with social changes. I had to mention this here because I don't want to overemphasize class, but um, this romanticism does tend to go along with the newly emergent middle classes of Europe and the United States. In France, especially, uh, the legal emancipation of the bourgeoisie um, coincides, of course, with their economic emergence in the late 18th and early 19th century, the emergence of an industrial society, right, where you have classes instead of orders. Like, again, the diff what's the difference, right? Class, estate, order. In the old system, you're part of a, part of a, a group by, by birth. If you're born a peasant, you're not clergy, you cannot move out of that group. Um, it's a, primarily a matter of birth in that regard, where the other system, it's a matter of your occupation in life. And of course, with the end of this legal status, because in the old regime, the middle classes, to be clear, you could be middle class in economic terms. You can have a ton of money as a, as, a, as a merchant or a tradesman or a lawyer, and yet still have you have lots of lots of restrictions on your freedom because you were born in that class. With all that going away, the middle classes begin to take on a self-conscious identity as a class opposed to the aristocracy, opposed to the working classes. And this emancipation from legal restrictions um, dovetails with the emancipation, uh, uh, I should say, emancipating from the legal subordination of aristocrats. That's one thing, of course, they resented. But it also leads to being emancipated from the uh, need to marry for money, right? Um, marriage for love, romantic marriage is largely a creation of the middle classes in the early 19th century, both in Europe and America. This is something that's pointed out by Alexis de Tocqueville, the great uh, political thinker. He's also a French liberal Catholic. He's also an aristocrat, but um, he talks about this in his work, Democracy in America, about how democratic societies, where they no longer feel the need right, to make marriage alliances for status reasons, they want to marry, marry for for you know equality of feeling and for love and stuff like that it's part and parcel of this so you have this more emotional uh sense of personal freedom being you know created by this and i'm mentioning all this because by the time the middle classes emerge really full-blown in the 1820s and 30s in france and elsewhere they are an influential they're a minority right? we put this clear they're still a minority and even within the middle classes let me be clear about this as well <clears throat> There's still a hierarchy within the middle classes. <laughs> the um, the people at the top of the rung, the intellectuals, the the wealthy, you know, um, the, the wealthy tradesmen, the lawyers, people with you know education, they look down on the lower middle class people and the working class. Uh, it's only this tiny minority, but now they're a very influential minority in government, in things like law and play, other things like this, who are now educated, self-confident, and here's the key thing very unwilling to take instruction 
from priests on things like politics, <laughs> which they see now as a birthright to decide for themselves. This, of course, clashes mightily with the conception of authority that the church ever since the ever since the Reformation in response to the, you know, Protestant sort of rejection of its authority. Uh, ever since then, the church has the Catholic Church has really exalted that conception of authority. And look, for obvious reasons, for a long time in the Middle Ages, the church, priests, clergy were used to basically telling people what to do because they're the only educated people in the society. Well, of course, that's changed by the 19th century. Especially because since the revolution in France, um, the upper echelons of that educational system there had been secularized. Not the lower, not, not primary education, not yet, that'll take several decades, but they had now the, you know, the highest schools in the land were, uh, you know, the Ecole, uh, the Ecole started by Napoleon and his predecessors. Um, basically to, to, to raise up people for the imperial regime, creates a whole generation, by the time you get to the Restoration Era, a whole generation of intellectuals, government officials, civil servants, who had effectively been, uh, been raised to despise the church. And though they are small in number, they are very influential in society. I'll give you one example of this. <clears throat> Adrien Dancet, who's a French historian of religion, told a story of a civil servant who in the late 1790s, you know, before Napoleon took over, um, was religious. So he, he went to mass. When we went to mass, he always, he, he always hid behind a pillar in the church to make sure he wasn't seen by anyone. Because if he was seen by anyone, he would be ruined and his career would be over. So that's what the church is up against, even after the church is restored and the monarchy is restored in 1814, 1815. So that's the backdrop we wanted to get to. After all that, what's the rolling, what's going on with the French church in the early 18-teens, which leads to the birth of Catholic, Catholic liberalism in that period? Well, first of all, after all that, after talking about how the French Revolution emancipated the middle classes and now they don't want to have to deal with aristocrats or, or clergy telling them what to do. Well, who do you think most of the bishops are who, who run the church in France in 1815? If you guessed, you're right. Yeah, it's mostly aristocrats. Uh, some of the bishops actually uh, had been bishops before the revolution in 1789. They're that old. Moreover, when the Bourbons are brought back in uh, 1814, they see the church do the Bourbon, but also church, most churchmen do. They see the church as a prop for both the monarchy and aristocracy. They, um, they see rebellion against social order as the greatest ill for very understandable reasons, by the way. Uh, and so um, they're intent on trying to restore as much of that as they can. In other words, you have a very reactionary body of people in the church governing it when all this is taking place. Moreover, there was a severe shortage of clergy in uh, in that period because you know seminaries were closed. You couldn't ordain people uh, under the revolution. Even under Napoleon, uh, clerical ed education had suffered mightily. Seminary tra tra training was very meager, and it was largely you know several decades behind the times. Instead of you know dealing with contemporary thought and trying to engage with it. They were still reading and writing against uh, authors who had been dead since the 1780s and 90s. And this meant that young seminarians, in a lot of ways, were left very, very, very 
intellectually unprepared to deal with them. People like Ernest Renan. You know who Ernest Renan is? If you don't know who that is, it's a French thinker who became a free thinker later in his life, but was a seminarian in the Restoration period. He wrote about this later in his life, about being about how bad the education was in these seminaries, what led, what led him losing his faith. And so the church, a lot of its priests are just kind of defenseless against these new streams of thought, which are so antithetical to the church and the faith. This is why in the early part of the Restoration, most of them, many of the most important writers who defended the church in that era were laymen. Uh, there was a group of them who con uh, collaborated on various literary endeavors, and a few, uh, such as Chateaubriand, who were also politicians in Parliament trying to support the monarchy that way, and the church at the same time. Some of these authors were really brilliant. Um, these reactionary thinkers, that's what they are, is reactionaries. Um, uh, two men stand out here, I'll mention, because they will feed directly into Catholic liberalism. Uh, one is Louis-Gabriel Amboise de Urbanold, uh, a nobleman who's also a politician in Parliament uh, in the 18, uh, teens and 20s. And then Joseph de Mestre, who is a, uh, a diplomat in the Kingdom of Piedmont, was French by, uh, by birth. And de Mestre, I'll start with him first, uh, as someone who, both of these thinkers I'm talking about here, will seek explanations for the faith and reasons to defend the church that tend to downplay reason, probably, I think, because um, the irreligious had sort of colonized rationalism uh, from the Enlightenment onward. And so someone like Demestre, um, who was in exile most of his adult life uh, from France, argued that the social order itself, society itself, was of divine origin, that God himself had given it its sort of blueprint. And this included a divinely ordained hierarchy of monarchy, church, and everything else. He saw providence as the guiding principle of history and society. In his view, the revolution had been a divine punishment for France's sins. Its sins, by the way, were mostly in overthrowing their, their anointed monarch. And de Mestre thought that human society, um, because human reason had been so weakened by the fall of man, that human beings were so depraved, that human society needed an absolute authority to guide it, otherwise it would collapse. Again, he's thinking about the revolution. And for him, this authority came not necessarily from the monarchy, but from the church, and in particular, the Pope. Um, remember last time I talked about the, um, the idea of ultramontanism, which is a really exalted view of papal authority? Joseph de Mestre is the ultra of super ultra is the ultra of ultramontanists. Uh, it is basically papal supremacy on steroids. Uh, there was a film years ago, I don't have to look this up or anything, uh, called Beckett. It was about Thomas the Beckett, the medieval saint. And there was a line by one of the bishops in that film, Bishop Folliot of London, who's an actual person, in which he says, I'm quoting this from memory because it, it, it encapsulates what Demestra thought about the church. He said, quote, what is, re what is important is revealed. This is the line in the film, not Demestra. Uh, Folliot said, what is important is revealed to man only through his church in the person of our Holy Father in Rome, his bishops and his priests, unquote. That idea that basically all authority 
all knowledge, all the faith descends from the Pope himself down through his priests, down through his bishops, his priests, to everybody else. Is a that's the sort of ultramontanism I'm talking about. That's very exaggerated. Um, but he's doing that at, in response to the chaos of the preceding several decades. De Bono was another thinker who thought along similar lines. Um, he thought, um, more particularly, he thought that his idea of society is one in which the community took total precedence over the individual. Uh, again, they're both him and Demestre reacting against what they perceive as the individualism run rampant of the enlightenment of the philosophs that they think caused the revolution. And for de Bonald, men only come to know truth in society and not by individual reason. Uh, de Bonald thought, like the Mestre, that society was the product of, of divine intelligence. God, in the beginning, they created, you know, human society, laid down immutable, immutable principles to man um, by giving them language. Uh, and this, these immutable principles are conveyed to men through tradition, which can be deduced. Uh, I, I guess from the nature of society, but like mathematical theorems. And so this is aimed at these, you know, enlightenment theories of, uh, of you know, very rationalistic, you know, individualistic forms of reasoning. And so for de Bonald, it's only from tradition one can attain truth, not from reason. And again, you remember what I talked about last time again, um, I mentioned some of those streams of thought that flow into Catholic liberalism. Two of them in particular, right? Fideism, right? The idea that you need some sort of authority because reason is so weak to find out truth. On the other hand, traditionalism, the idea that, you know, truth without supernatural, you know, order can only be found out through the tradition of the church, not through reason. These are both what will eventually be condemned as heresies, but they're kind of then there in Nuce in the thought of these two very brilliant thinkers, by the way, who did a good turn for the church. I don't want to criticize them too much. Demestra especially, actually, they're both, well, they're both really influential, far beyond, by the way, the circles they ran in. Uh, de Bono influenced all sorts of thinkers you wouldn't even think of in the 19th century. And Demestra is known, among other things, for being a great prose, French prose stylist. Uh, he's definitely still read today as a sort of um, canon of sort of conservative thinkers. My point is, both of these men uh, will feed into the thought of the person who is responsible for founding what we call the Catholic liberal mood in the 19th century, especially de Bonald, who was a contemporary of him. They're thinking especially about society, especially about the need for authority, especially about the, the weakness of reason uh, and the uh, the necessity of, you know, uh, of uh, having an authority, will feed into the thought of a man named Felicite Robert de Lamanet, the Abbe de Lamanet. Uh, and he's the one who in the 18-teens, uh, uh, it should be 1820s, who will um begin and start uh use the word uh liberal in connection with catholicism and uh, that's where i'm going to stop right here um that's the sort of background you've gotten all this sort of intellectual stuff social stuff uh because what's going to happen is um i'll preview it for you lamanet will become the first major clerical writer in the uh, restored monarchy in france he'll publish a best-selling work he'll become popular with the public he seems to get the attention of the secular world. This is one of the things that the church is concerned about. And um, what you're gonna see is that he starts out as a sort of reactionary in political terms, like de Bono and de Mestre. However, by the 1820s, for a variety of reasons, he'll get the idea that, uh, no, we don't need to have 
um, the restored sort of thrown an altar regime where church and state support each other, they can be separated. He'll found a Catholic movement, which urges uh, the church to do that. What's going to happen? You'll find out, of course, go from there. Uh, his thought will be condemned um, by the Pope, and he will eventually leave the church altogether and die outside of it. So that is next time we talk about um, uh, the Abbe de Lamennais and the origins of French liberalism. And that is our podcast for this time. Hopefully, we give you some background stuff to think about for next time. The next one will probably drop after today is Wednesday, probably after Easter, uh, probably Monday uh, after Easter. So uh, I want to wish all of you out there, my listeners, thank you so much for listening, supporting the podcast. I really appreciate it. May God richly bless you all. Have a wonderful Triduism, a wonderful Easter with your friends and family. Um, and um, we'll hear from me soon. See you all next time. God bless you and take care.